It's interesting that we uh, talk in that song about all I am. God, you get everything. Um, and, you know, sometimes in the midst of singing, sometimes we feel that. Sometimes in the midst of, you know, being together, praying together, being with family, things like that, we, we get that sense that, God, you get it all. But then there's actually, uh, at least for me, a, a lot of times where I just don't feel that. I mean, I just don't feel like, God, you've got all of me. I feel like, God, you've got, uh, you know, the back of my mind. You've got a few things. But all of me? And actually, a couple uh, weeks ago, Neil talked about the parable of the sower, the parable of the seeds. And uh, it's at the beginning of chapter 8 in Luke. And there's that third seed, if you remember. The third seed is the one that uh, the, the farmer guy throws. And it goes into the soil, and the, and the soil... Uh, accepts it and it germinates and the, the plant starts to grow. But it, it's growing up around thorns, right? And the thorns, they, they grow with the plant and they begin to choke it. The thorns um, pierce into the, the stalk of the plant as it grows up and choke it out so that it dies. And then Jesus tells us that the thorns are the cares of this world, you know, the pleasures of life, things like that. All this stuff around us starts to grow up and, and choke us. And I want to submit to you that, uh, you know, here, if you're, if you're planted, right, if you're, you're planted in Orange County, oh boy, are you in the midst of the thorns. The thorns are everywhere. I was thinking about this. I was like, all right, what's the thorniest place in the world? Now, it's obviously not Orange County. It's definitely Tokyo. If you've been to Tokyo, oh my goodness. What a land. What a land of pleasure. What a land of the cares of this world. What a land where there just is no sense that there's anything other than this stuff. Right? And so we might think, well, at least we're not in Tokyo. But here's the problem. Here's the thing. All right, Tokyo in Japan, 1% Christian, right? Not religious at all. So you'd expect it to be, you know, all about the cares of life and whatnot. But here's the thing. You and I, for whatever reason, we've been planted in Orange County for a while. And Orange County is a pretty religious place, right? Lots of people, you know, go to church. They, uh, they talk about God. They're Christians, right? And so it's an insidious set of thorns. The thorns are out there trying to choke these plants. And we don't see them because they're, they're, they're clothed in, you know, talk of God and talk of Jesus. And so when we sing these songs, All I Am, I wonder, I wonder if we're not, if we're not maybe missing it. Maybe the thorns are, are choking us out and we don't even know it. And some seeds fell among the thorns and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. Now the seeds that fell among the thorns are those, us, who when they have heard, go out. They've heard the gospel, the good news of salvation. And then they're choked with cares and riches and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. Luke 8, 7, and 14. A very depressing parable for us. We should be worried about that. We're in the middle of the biggest thorn bush. Well, okay, L.A. is probably worse. Maybe San Francisco. San Diego, I think they've got something good going on. So I'm not ready to 
consign them to the thorn bush. But cer- certainly, okay, probably Chicago's worth New-, New York, I guess. But Orange County's right up there. And we should be terrified because if we read that story, that parable, and we start to think, well, what's God saying? Jesus is telling us, he's like, this is, this, you're going to get choked out. In fact, if you read that parable, there's no, there's no hope. If that's where you're planted, if you're planted in Orange County or Tokyo or New York or San Francisco, you're, in, you're done. There's no way. What are you going to do? The thorns are there. They're, 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 they're uh, penetrating you and choking you out. What kind of hope do we have to have the right kind of faith? Faith that doesn't get choked. Faith that doesn't choke. What do we have? What hope do we have? Well, Luke gives us a little bit of hope. That's what we're going to read today. We're going to read two stories where Luke says, here are some people who are in danger of getting choked out, but their faith doesn't choke. Their faith makes it. And if we look at the story, I think we're going to get to see the, the signs of faith that doesn't choke. And maybe we'll get to see how our faith might change and might grow so that's not the kind of ch- uh, faith that gets choked out in Orange County. Today's story is uh, Luke eight forty to 56. It's a little bit long, but I, I ask you to bear with me. Let's stand and read. Um, if you can, follow it in your note sheet because I've... Uh, I've made a few changes, and they're in brackets, so you'll know that, you're, that a change is happening. So let's stand and read. Uh, Luke eight forty to 56. So it was, when Jesus returned, uh, he's returned from um, doing a few things, well, I'll mention them briefly, that the crowd welcomed him. The crowd, welcoming. Nice. For they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a leader in the synagogue, And this leader in the synagogue falls down at Jesus' feet and begs him to come to his house. Why? He had an only daughter. She's 12 years old, and she's dying. And so Jesus goes with him, but as he went, the crowds choked him. Now a woman, having a flow of blood, that's uh, menstrual blood, her menstrual cycle has not stopped, for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood, everything she had on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of Jesus' garment. And immediately her menstrual blood stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied touching him, no one one admits this, when all denied touching him, Peter and those with him said, Master, Jesus, the crowds are choking you. And you say, who touched me? But Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. Now, when the, women, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she can't hide. She's going to get called out. We should wonder why that is. She came trembling and falling down, just like Jairus, falling down before him. She declared to him, in the presence of all the people, the reason she'd touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he's still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, Jairus's house, saying to him, Jairus, your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, answered Jairus, saying, don't be afraid, only believe, and she'll be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother of the girl. Now all... Everyone in the crowd and everyone who's following and seeing wept and mourned for her. And then Jesus says to everyone, don't weep. She's not dead, but sleeping. And they, I've inserted the crowd, ridiculed him, knowing she's dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand and called, saying, little girl, arise. And then her spirit returns. 
And she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. You may be seated. The choke! Choke! Don't choke! Choke is an interesting word in uh, Greek. It's sumpnigo, which is kind of fun to say. Uh, Sumpnigo is a very uh, common word. It's always used in any time you're talking about uh, things that are growing up in the grounds and then they uh, get choked out from lack of water or they're strangled, something like that. It's very common, totally normal. Uh, What's not normal, though, is that uh, it ever be used of people. In fact, in, in your note sheets the, on the back side, the very first thing, the Greek word translated choke in 842.45 is something to go. And it's never used to talk about people, except here in the Gospel of Luke. And when I say never, I don't just mean never in the Bible. I mean never in the whole, everything we have from, that's written in Greek. And it's actually pretty cool. We have a ton of stuff. We have stuff written from about the 6th century BC all the way up to about the 3rd or 4th century AD, almost a thousand years of ancient Greek literature. Now that's a lot. And there's a very cool website you can go to and you can actually search for any Greek word you like and it'll tell you how many times it shows up in all the Greek words that we, the Greek literature we have. This word something go meaning choke, it shows up twice meaning people, talking about people. Only right here in the Gospel of Luke. Now that might sound a little strange to you so let me give you an example of what that might be like. Let's just say that I'm a uh, I'm talking to you about my, the traffic experience that I just had. I've been on the five, the Orange Crush. That's a thing, I think. Um, I've just been trying to go up to uh, wherever, Long Beach, and I, 405 was awful. And I say things like, man, traffic was a disaster. Traffic was suffocating. Right? That's pretty normal. Traf- it, the, the freeway was congested. Right? That's normal. We, congested. We use that as a metaphor. But then what if I said, the freeway was a box of sardines? Kind of weird. But you, because you speak English and you know it very well, you understand exactly what I mean, right? The freeway was, was, was here and it, the cars were packed together tightly like a box of sardines. You might think, that's kind of a weird way to describe it, but I get what you're saying. But then imagine this. Let's just imagine that 15 minutes ago, we'd been talking. Daniel and I were having a little convo about, you know, we'd seen this movie and right afterwards we'd had some pizza and I said, Daniel, I just had the greatest pizza of my life. For the first time, I took the plunge. I did it. For years, I've, I've been you know, wary of doing it, but I finally ordered sardines on my pizza. And it was a delight. Transcendent. The salt, the cheese, the sauce. It was perfect, man. I can't stop thinking about how I've never done this before. It's amazing. The sardines, who thought? Then 15 minutes later, I say, yeah, traffic was like a box of sardines. Daniel knows what's going on. He knows that I've got something in my head, something that I've been thinking about a lot and focusing on. And so it's slipping into the rest of my conversation. Well, I want to suggest to you that's exactly what's happening in Luke right here. uh, These words, uh, when it says choke, the crowds choked him, or the crowds are choking you uh, in verse 45. That's that's, uh, actually that word, and it's usually translated something like are pressing in on you or crushing you or whatever. That's not that word. It's choked. And it's very, very strange that it gets used this way. It never does anywhere else in Greek literature. I want to suggest to you that Luke's doing this intentionally because Luke is wanting us to think about that seed, that seed that got choked out by the cares of this life. And he wants us to see that this is a real life situation that exemplifies that. 
Here's a situation where two people are in danger of having their faith choked out, just like the seed. Two people are going to come to Jesus and they're going to need something, but they're about, afraid to be, they're about to be choked out. By who? The crowds. Notice the crowds are choking Jesus. Crowds are choking you. The crowds choked him. And the second thing on your note sheet there, the crowds in these scenes are the thorns in the parable of the sower. In this scene, it starts out the crowd welcomes him, and it sounds like a nice thing, but as we go through, we see that the crowd's not, not, they're not good guys. In fact, they're an impediment to everything that Jesus is trying to do. They're choking people, and they're choking faith, and they're trying to get people to, to not trust Jesus, but instead to fall away. So just keep that in the back of your mind as we go through the rest of the story. Now, Jairus, good guy, rich and respected, sort of person that I'd like to be. Happens very often uh, in contemporary 21st century. Uh, if you're really good at being a preacher, then you become rich, right? Jairus is a leader of the, of the synagogue, and so really the best way to make money in this, in this culture is to go and be a preacher, which, I mean, you can see if you look at you know, our house and uh, our cars and stuff, you can see that that's uh, still a thing. <laughs> Definitely doing something wrong. Okay. Can't, can't go back in time, though. Can't, ch- can't change that choice. All right. Uh, yes. But at that time, at that time, uh, a leader in a synagogue, a, a rich and respected member of society, he's also believing but desperate. We see this because he comes to Jesus and he bows to him. Very strange for a religious leader to bow to Jesus. Remember we see in the Gospel of John, uh, Nicodemus comes. Nicodemus doesn't bow to Jesus. He just kind of says, hey, you're a teacher, I'm a teacher, let's talk. He's desperate. He begs. We see that. He's got a 12-year-old daughter. See, rich and respectable people, they you know, comport themselves in a certain way, but at a, at, a, at a certain time and in a certain situation, even rich and respectable people will start to look desperate, and they'll start to do unseemly things. One thing that could push you to that place would be to have a daughter who's 12 years old, your only child, dying Jesus hears Jairus, he understands the situation, he says, okay, I'll go with you. So he does, and uh, as he's headed to Jairus' house to heal uh, the daughter, a a woman pops into our story. Now, think about this scene, all right? So it says that that Jesus is being choked, and we know what that means. It means that he's walking, and he can't, it's like, it's like getting onto the subway in Tokyo, where, you know, have you seen that? Have you seen the YouTubes of that? It's sweet. They literally, I've done this. It's awesome. You, if you go to a Yomiuri uh, Tigers, is that the right? Tigers game. After the game, like the, the Shibuya uh, Shinjuku station gets totally packed because everyone's got to go home. And so they, uh, they take these bars and they just shove you in. It's awesome. One thing that's really cool about it is that you're in the subway and you can't move. And so even though the subway's shaking and like bouncing and slowing down, you don't move. You're like, oh, I'm not going to fall over because someone's going if to, if I did, I'd probably kill somebody. It's cool. That's kind of the situation Jesus is in, right? He's, uh, he's, uh, 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 he's being choked. And so imagine this woman. This woman's behind him, and she sees him. And in order to get to him, she's going to have to kind of do one of these. She's going to have to be the running back, going through all the blockers, you know, getting him aside, da, 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 da. And she's got an idea. We know what her idea is. She's heard this man's a healer. She thinks that he can help her. And so she's going to go, and she's going to try and touch him, which is a very th- strange thing to do. If I wanted to have a doctor heal me, I wouldn't go up to him and touch his lab coat. Is that lab coat, right? That's what they... Yeah, okay. I wouldn't touch his lab coat. I would go up to the doctor and be like, I am sick, heal me with your science, right? So why does she do that? Well, this woman's poor and despised, 
and she has a flow of menstrual blood, and she lives in, an, in a society where touch, as Doug brought out uh, in his prayer, touch is something really, really important. You see, in this society, in this world, in the ancient Near East, touch can do amazing things. In fact, we have um, records from Asclepius. He's the god of healing, Greco-Roman god. And his temple in Epidaurus, uh, what would happen is people would go there and there would be a cloth, a sacred cloth in the temple. And if you had a malady, a sickness you couldn't get rid of, you'd come up and you would rub the cloth. And by touching it, you'd be transferring your illness to the cloth. That was the idea. Touch is a powerful thing. In fact, in the ancient world, if you uh, meet someone and you touch them, you can give them your disease. You can transfer it. Which, of course, if you're thinking about it, is really just the 21st century germ theory of disease. So it's kind of interesting that uh, in the superstitious culture of the uh, ancient Near East, they actually were completely right <laughs> about, about how germs work. Uh, it's a, in the Middle Ages, we kind of lost touch with that. But yes, the, the ancient world did understand that. Um, moreover, this woman's Jewish, right? This woman's Jewish. So she, because she has blood, she has ritual impurity. If, you have blood, if you're in any contact with blood in, the, in, uh, the first, in first century Palestine, if you have any contact with blood, you are unfit for several things. Temple worship. You are unfit to hang out with other people in the community. You are immediately ostracized until the blood stops. So this is a woman who's had for 12 years, notice the entire length of time this poor dying girl has been alive. This woman has been unfit to be with other people in her community and worship. She's been completely ostracized. In fact, she's probably going to be near death because we noticed that she spent all of her money trying to get well. And the doctors haven't been able to do anything. And so now she's destitute on top of being ostracized and excluded from worship. And so what she's doing when she's pulling her way through is that's a sign of desperation. Every time she touches one of these people that's choking Jesus, she's infecting them. Every time she touches one of them, she's making them unfit for community, unfit for worship. And moreover, when she goes to touch that garment of Jesus, she very well may be trying to get it off on him. She might be trying to spread her disease so she can get free. We know that's not the case. But the crowd doesn't. And to them, if they notice her, what is it going to look like? It's going to look like one of maybe three different things, and I have them in your note sheet here. The woman appears to the crowd to be trying to, one, maybe steal Jesus' power. Maybe she's hoping that by touching him, she can get a bit of his divine power and heal herself. But she's not asking him, she's just taking. Maybe, number two, she's trying to infect everyone around her. Maybe, number three, she's trying to give her disease to Jesus Here, prophet, you deal with it. Now, we have uh, from the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, it's an ancient Jewish Jewish text which uh, reflects on the law, right? And the law says things about ritual impurity. It talks about menstruation, blood flow. And one of the things that the Talmud says is it says, if you're a man 
and, or a woman, and you uh, intentionally um, have contact with your menstrual blood with another person, you intentionally do this, right? You can be sentenced to death. This is how important it is. If you intentionally uh, infect someone with your menstrual blood, you can be killed because it is so awful. So now you might understand why it is that she's terrified when Jesus says, who touched me? She very well could be under penalty of death. From who? The crowds. Because if they realize what's just happened, they're going to realize that she was spreading her disease to them, knowingly, that she was trying to steal divine power, that she was trying to wipe off her problem on others so that they would be Excluded the way she's been. The woman's already destitute, yes. She's already desperate. And now she's in danger of death because of what she's done. Now, if Jesus were a nice guy, he wouldn't have said anything at all. Right? I mean, she could have gotten away with it. He's, st- he's walking around, he's crushed in, he feels the power, and he's Jesus. He kind of knows what's going on. He gets it. He could have just stopped and said, well, let it ride. Good for her. She, was, she believed, she, uh, she went for it. Jesus knows her heart. Why does he force a confrontation? Why does he stop everything? Why does he get up and make her come out in front of everyone and be like, yeah, so here's what happened, guys. What does it say? Jesus said, somebody touched me. I perceived power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him just as Jairus did. And what does she say? She declared to him, in the presence of all the people, the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. She stands there in front of everyone and says, I wasn't trying to steal his power, okay? Look, I wasn't trying to infect you guys. I wasn't trying to even wipe off my disease on on Jesus, okay? I wasn't trying to do any of that stuff. Guys, look at me. I have been alone for 12 years. I haven't worshipped at the synagogue or the temple in 12 years. I have nothing left. I have no friends. I have no family. And I heard that this guy was here, and I believed. I thought maybe he could help. And what he did, he did help. Well, the crowd, I mean, I don't know, maybe, right? You know, if someone, if someone tells a, a sob story, we kind of want to believe it, sure. Granted, we want to give them the benefit of the doubt. At the same time, though, everything that she did endangered us, too, right? I mean, really, lady? You know, uh, couldn't she have just, I don't know, flagged him down at a different point? Why did you infect all the rest of us with your problems? You know what, I'm not sure exactly, lady, that what you're saying is true. In fact, I think maybe you're just trying to cover your tracks, This is the situation the woman finds herself in only because Jesus forces her to come and tell her tale. I want to suggest to you that the real problem here is not about stopping a menstrual blood flow 
I think that Jesus can do that. God can do all kinds of wacky things. And those of us in the congregation who've heard amazing stories or have experienced ourselves the hands of God, we know that. We don't, we're not surprised that God can do Well, we are surprised, but we shouldn't be, that God can do these things. Instead, Jesus is doing something very specific. He's trying to point out how to have the kind of faith you need that doesn't get choked by the thorns. Jesus wants to pit this woman and see if she's got the guts to see if she's willing to cast not just her physical health in his hands, but also her social status in his hands. He wants to see whether or not she is going to let him be the one who interprets what she's done, who validates what she's done, who tells that her, uh, her in front of the people that she's healed, that she's okay. Jesus wants, to, wants us to see her demonstrating a certain kind of faith, a faith that ignores the costs, ignores the social costs. She has to put the interpretation of her actions in Jesus' hands. She has to be willing to have her reputation and her declaration of wellness or unwellness given over to Jesus. She has to risk the practical effects of her healing. See, if, if Jesus says, no, that's not true, you're a liar, you were just trying to uh, get some extra power, you were trying to hurt people, if that happens, she's dead. And Jesus pushes her into a place where she has to depend on him. Here's the crowd just waiting just waiting to take her out. And she has to take that extra kind of step of faith, faith in the midst of thorns, faith that says, I'm giving it all, no matter what the cost, taking the biggest risk she's ever taken in her life. Yeah, she's desperate. Now her life is on the line, and Jesus says, I want to see how far you're willing to go. She has to be face, she has to be willing to face the crowd with her faith. She has to be willing to look the thorns in the face and say, this is who I am, this is who I trust, come what may. Well, remember, the whole time Jairus is there. That took, you know, what, two minutes, right? I mean, Jairus is standing there, he's a little antsy. Jesus, my daughter is dying. He's crushed in. Interesting that he doesn't get upset about her doing what she did. Maybe because he's focused on other things. But Jairus is there, and he's, he's watching the whole thing. And then he sees everything that goes on. Notice he's a leader in the synagogue, very attuned to religious law. So he knows exactly what she's just gone through. And maybe, maybe, maybe Jairus is learning a thing or two. Maybe he's, you know, cluing in on something that Jesus is up to. Maybe he's learning a little bit about the faith that, that doesn't choke. I want to suggest to you that... Uh, this is the next thing in your note sheets. Unlike in John 11 with Lazarus, Jesus is not late in arriving to heal Jairus' daughter. Um, in John 11, we have the story where uh, Jesus hears that Lazarus is dying, and then it says he tarries, he waits in a town for a couple of days so that Lazarus will die, so that he can come and raise him from the dead. It's not, a, not the nicest thing Jesus has ever done, but he explains that it was uh, in order to increase the glory of God and, and, and cause people to believe. Um, in this case, that's not what's going on. Remember, this took two minutes. Jesus is walking. He's crushed. Somebody touched me. Who was it? Everyone's like, I didn't do it. They step back. The woman says, I did it. And Jesus says, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. That's nothing. That's, that didn't train wreck anything. In fact, the only thing it did is it gave enough time for the messenger 
who saw Jairus' daughter die, come to meet Jesus before he got there. So really, I mean, that's, that's the only thing that, that it, it, it slowed down. Jesus isn't late. In fact, I think maybe what Jesus is doing is he's taking this moment, this opportunity to, to let this woman demonstrate to the crowd that they're not going to train wreck her faith, that she's got the faith that doesn't choke. And let Jairus see that so he's ready for his trial, for his test. And notice what happens. He goes to Jairus' house. Um, the people uh, there who follow him, there's the crowd that's followed him. There's also probably the friends and family there who are wailing and mourning. I mean, this is an utter catastrophe, a true tragedy. A 12-year-old girl, only daughter of a respected rich member of society, has died. And they're beginning the grieving process, beginning the mourning process, like anybody would. And Jesus goes into the situation, and he says, Hey, guys, stop crying. Um, she's just asleep. And I love the New King James. It says they ridiculed him, made fun of him. Jesus, don't you get it? You too, Jairus, you should listen, man. Life's hard. Terrible stuff happens. Deal with it. Do the right thing, man. Don't be an idiot. This is a bunch of Yahoo talk. This is crazy talk, man. Your daughter just died. Now is the time to start accepting that fact. Doing the right thing. Don't dishonor her memory, Jairus. Don't, don't go along with this crazy guy. Don't. Yeah, we get it. You're desperate. We get it. Absolutely. But man, don't, don't make a, mock, a laughing stock of your whole home, your household, everything you have. What? You want to be like, what do you want, how do you want people to think of you, man? Come on. Do the right thing. Go in there, close her eyes, cover her, and prepare her for burial. And begin crying like, like you ought to. Because this is awful, this is tragic. Stop hoping. It's unseemly. It's dumb. And it's desperate. Here's the moment where Jairus has a choice. He can either go with Jesus and do the crazy thing. That might, that might, that might play out. That might be a win. Um, or he can do the respectable thing and he can begin crying and weeping and moving on with his life. Here's the thing. If he goes in with Jesus, right? He goes in, he takes a shot, right? And Jesus turns out not to be able to do it. What's Jairus going to look like? I mean, what, leader in the synagogue? Is that the kind of guy you want leading? The kind of crazy guy who's like, woo, yeah, whatever, I'll just do anything. If it, you know, I'm so desperate that I'm going to stop thinking and start acting just, just anything. Any, any snake oil salesman who comes along and can solve my problems, I'm going to follow that guy. Is that, is that who we want running the synagogue? Is that the kind of guy we're going to go to for wise advice? Is that a good pastor? Or is really a good pastor, you know, maybe somebody who's well-educated, who's thoughtful, wise, accepts the vagaries of life and just kind of deals with it and is sort of calm, cool, and collected and is willing to hold your hand and be like, God's with you. Which one do you prefer? Right? Who's it going to be? Jairus is right on the edge. If he goes into the house with Jesus and he expects a miracle and he's wrong, he's not, he's not going to be leader of the synagogue ever again. People are going to laugh at him. As they ought to. Because what he's doing is nuts. But Jairus gets it. 
He just saw that woman. He understands what Jesus is after. He's not just after faith. Jairus believes. The woman believed. They, they bow down. They beg. Jesus, we know you can do crazy stuff. We, we believe. He gets it. The question is, is he willing to put up with the social costs of that faith? If Jairus is wrong about Jesus, he can lose everything. The social pressure from the crowd is to do the right thing. Failure to conform might result in being stripped of everything. This, this is the faith that doesn't choke in Orange County and in Tokyo and in New York. It's the faith that says, devil may care. It's desperate, but it's so desperate it never gives up. It knows the cost and it goes anyway, publicly, without fear. Maybe with a little bit of fear, but not enough to stop. It's the faith that doesn't give up when the social costs are huge, when you're going to be laughed at, when you're going to be ridiculed, when you're going to be hated, when you're going to be tossed out, losing your position, everything's gone from you, all the Acuras and the, the Audis and the Covenant Hills, Covenant, Covenant Hills and Newport Beach and your awesome 24-foot yacht. It's all going to be taken from you. It's going to be taken. But you go anyway. You're too desperate not to. That's faith that doesn't get choked out by the crowds. Uh, By following Jesus, Jairus risks looking foolish in your note sheet. But he goes because, man... If there's anything that you're willing to look dumb for, it's saving your daughter's life. So now we talk about the faith that doesn't choke. Here we are. We're in Orange County. Uh, We, too, have social pressures, just like uh, the woman and Jairus. Uh, We, too, are constantly being choked. And you know what? It's really easy, actually, to have a certain kind of faith in this environment. This is the faith that values, and this is in your note sheets, image enough to remain despairing and desperate. This is a tragic thing. The faith that chokes in Orange County values image enough to remain uh, despairing and desperate. This is crazy. We all, I mean, gosh, we all live, we all have things in our lives that are... um, my goodness, uh, that we're desperate for. Maybe some of us are totally satisfied, but for the most part, uh, people, if you get down deep in behind the mask, behind the facade, behind all of that, you're going to find that we have things that we're desperate for, things that we despair ever achieving, ever seeing, ever imagining could happen, right? Those things are buried down deep. In Orange County, the thorn, the crowd, says, push it down, don't deal with it, it's more important for us to think that you're successful and wonderful and perfect and awesome and all of those things. And, and for us, we can actually have a kind of Christian faith where we come to church every week, we, uh, uh, we tithe, we do all these things, and yet, and yet, we still value image enough to remain in our despair and our desperation. The faith that doesn't choke in Orange County, in your note sheets, ignores the social costs 
of looking unseemly, wrong, dumb, and desperate. Wow. I mean, look, just personally, I mean, I I bank on my image. I bank on you and everyone I meet looking at me and thinking, wow, he's got it together. So charming and fun. I mean, that's it, right? And if that slips for a second, I could lose everything, right? I could lose lose that huge paycheck I get each every two weeks. Thanks, Lloyd. it could, it, could, it could all be gone, man, in a second. And so when there's things deep in this heart that are despairing and desperate, I have to face a question. What's more important to me? Is it to be super Orange County pastor boy? Or is it to get healed? I suggest that most of you here have things that are deep down and dark that you can cover up if you choose and you got to ask yourself what's more important being super orange county whatever boy or girl or getting healed the woman she, she says you know what Jesus here's what I did You tell these people that I'm not lying. You tell these people. She puts her reputation, all of her hope, her life in his hands. She says, I don't care what they think anymore. Because I've got faith that doesn't choke. Jerry says, I'm going with you. I'm too desperate not to. And I don't care if they take everything away from me. I can't live with myself if I don't do every golly gee gosh darn thing I can to save my little girl. Most of us, for the most part, most of the time, aren't trying to uh, save our 12-year-old only daughter. Most of us aren't uh, trying to stop uh, religious and social exclusion uh, of 12 years. But that's the kind of faith you need to have here. You've got to have the faith that's so desperate. It says, okay, whatever it takes. That's what you're being asked. And that is a tall order. The problem, of course, is that I have no idea to tell you how to to get that, how to get that faith. Yeah, I mean, you just go out and take it. No. uh, My my sense, my sense is that that developing faith of that kind um, requires a kind of steady, unyielding set of practices where everything goes to God in prayer. Where everything that's good, we give thanks to God. Where everything that's bad, we share with God. Where God is the number one person in our life as we deal with both the good and the bad things. Only the kind of person who lives that way, who's fed by scripture, who's fed by prayer, who's fed um, by these practices, only that kind of person is going to know and love God enough so that when the chips are down, we don't care about what the crowd thinks. Uh, 
Uh, I've known a lot of people over the years who uh, have faced life-threatening circumstances. Um, you know, the, the Jairus or, or the woman with the blood flow. Uh, I've known a number, I and mean, we all have, really. But, I mean, let's take, let's take a page from, from the book of Marianne Fisher here for a second. Let's take a page from that book. Marianne lived her life in such a way that everything was subjected and submitted to God. Everything was given to him, all glory, all honor, everything. It was all God. And then something came along in her life that she couldn't beat. Life and death. It's been almost a year now. Is that right, Marianne? She's told, it's, uh, the ride's over. Um, we're sorry. In that situation, how did she respond? Well, she responded the same way she'd always responded. She didn't care about what we thought or what anyone thought because the only thing she cared about was what God thought because that's how she lived before and that's how she lives now and that's how she's going to continue to live until the Lord takes her home. That's our playbook. That's how we roll. That's the faith that doesn't choke in Orange County. Let's pray. Father, we're people who are in a thorny, thorny world. On every side, God, we're told that what matters is what we've done, how much money we make, how white our smile is, how perfect we are, how free of all the things that that drag us down we are. That's the world we live in, God. We confess it. We confess to you right now that we live in a world that is about image, that is about the cares of this world, that is about wealth, that is about the pleasures of life. And God, we know that those thorns are piercing our flesh and threatening to choke our faith. God, I ask that we will have the desperate, never give up, I don't care, devil may care faith of the woman with the blood flow, of Jairus, of Marianne. God, make us people who care more about you than about our neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.